it won't last forever, and I can't, I can't possibly, let's say in eight years, that, that's depleted. Government will re- replenish it. I can't forever see them saying, well, no, I, I probably won't be there. I probably won't be there then. They don't want me there either. <laughs> I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Representative Rod Blum trying to defend Republicans' health plan at a town hall in Iowa this week. Blum isn't alone. House Republicans out on recess are facing major questions. A new Politico morning consult poll found that only 38% of voters approve of the Republican bill, which is currently heading to the Senate. What does it mean to have such an unpopular bill, and what does that mean for the progressive movement pushing back against it? Today, we'll talk to two people who know quite a bit about political messaging and strategy. First, you'll hear from John Favreau, who is the chief speechwriter for President Obama and helped work on the communication strategy for the Affordable Care Act. Then after the break, we caught up with Rick Wilson, a Republican strategist who helped push back on the ACA, but is no fan of Republicans' efforts either. Quick reminder, please subscribe, rate Pulse Check on your favorite podcast player, share it with that favorite policy wonk in your life who wants to know a little bit more about healthcare, and a reminder to check out our library of episodes. Mario Molina, the recently fired health insurance executive, appeared on last week's episode and made a little news. We also had Susan Collins, the main senator, on Pulse Check last month. She's poised to be a key player in the Senate's health reform negotiations. And with that, let's get to John Favreau. And I know the audio quality isn't great. We reached him in California. But I thought it would be interesting to hear from him now with so much going on around the effort to repeal the ACA. It's been a big couple years for you since you left the White House. You've been podcasting. You've written pieces for Bill Simmons and others. Are you the alpha John Favreau on Google yet? Have you risen to the top of the search rankings? I don't know. I know that... um... Uh, there's still a lot of people who confuse me for the director, so I don't think uh, I don't think that's been completely sorted out yet. <laughs> is, is it <laughs> especially, a especially now, now that we both live in Los Angeles? It's even more confusing. So. Has he ever confronted you with that, asking if you're uh, trying to steal? Yes. Yeah. No, it's funny. We um, we ended up getting on each other's emails by accident. Like people would accidentally email him versus me once we were both out in Hollywood, and um, so finally, so we got to talking, and then. Uh, he was doing a pop-up at a restaurant for that movie Chef that he did that's right down the street from my house. And so I went and met uh, him and his family and finally get to uh, get to meet him face-to-face and talk about all the times we've been confused. So it was great. He's a really nice guy. <laughs> and, and and the time you got emailed and now you're actually directing Jungle Book 2, which uh, is, uh, is another... Me. I have had emails from agents in Hollywood that were like, sir, I would like to pitch my client for a role in the Lion King or for your next movie. And I was just like, come on, man, you're an agent. You can't even figure out the right person. Come on. Well, I I think you should just accept those and then show up at the, at at the, yeah, I I mean, why not? Right. And I'll take my cut. As, as much as I would like to continue talking about the confusing nature of emails and names, Let's let's talk a little bit about your interesting background. You were Obama's chief speechwriter for eight years, starting in mm-hmm. 2005. He was a yes. senator. Do you remember the first speech you wrote for him on health care? I do. Um, he was he was supposed to go to a Families USA event. And I think it was when um, he might. I don't know if he officially announced, but it's 
seemed like he was probably going to run for president. And uh, it, it couldn't have been. It has to be before he officially announced because we were still in the Senate. But I remember talking with uh, President Obama or then Senator Obama and Robert Gibbs and Karen Kornblue, who was our policy advisor at the time. And we're trying to figure out, like, what's he going to say at this uh, at this conference about health care? Because obviously, if we're going to have a full health care plan on the campaign, it's going to be done in the campaign. It's not going to be done beforehand. So we're not going to have a bunch of policy details. Um, but, you know, he, wanted, he said, I want to be bold here. And um, so we came up with that he would say, if if I run, you know, if I'm going to run for president, um, I will finish. Um, I will pass comprehensive health care reform by the end of my first term as president. And he, he was going to say that at the conference. And we're like, well, you know, it's a pretty bold goal to uh, to go out there and say, but let's let's shoot for it. Let's see what happens. And then it'll uh, and then we'll have to make it true. So uh, so that's what we did. That was the first healthcare speech I ever wrote for. And, and that's what he did when he when he got. And in that's office. what he did. Yeah. And at the time, I have to say, I was a little skeptical that he'd be able to do it. I'm like, wow. End of the first term in office, comprehensive health care reform. I don't know about that. Um, but he did it. He did it. Yeah, well, well, now that's just what what presidents do. They get into office and they they work on healthcare. That's the new truism. So, yeah. by by the time the the president President Obama left office, he was incredibly literate on healthcare. I mean, I would hear him talk and he mm. could explain the intricacies of the individual insurance market, and it's obviously a striking difference from from current President Trump, who. <laughs> who not a not a details guy, as he says. No, no, no. <laughs> P- policy wonk and, and and Donald Trump usually aren't in the same sentence unless they're in opposition. So I, right. I'm I'm curious, John. Was it a problem that President Obama knew so much about healthcare? Did it make him too knowledgeable to be an effective communicator of of simple messages on such a complex topic? You know, I don't think it was because he knew too much. I think. I, here's the challenge that we faced on communications with healthcare, and it was a challenge from the very beginning, was any comprehensive healthcare reform bill could not just aim to expand coverage. It had to also control costs, right? Now, it had to do that because, A, it's good policy, and then secondary, from a political perspective, um, you know, there's a small percentage of the population even though it was far too many, 20, I think it was what, almost 40 million people at the time who didn't have health insurance. More, more that, than 40 million. It was, it was more than 40 at that time, right? When, God, when we started writing healthcare speeches, it was 40 million. It had gone up since then. Um, so uh, still the vast majority of the American population has health insurance, right? And so as you were talking about comprehensive reform, you, you had to talk about for all the people who do have insurance, how you're going to bring costs down, how you're going to bring premiums down, and also how you're going to protect that insurance and make sure that's good insurance and make sure that insurance companies um, can't, you know, get get between decisions between you and your doctor. So cost control had to be a big part of the conversation. The challenge is when you start talking about how to bring down costs, it gets, as you know, it gets very wonky very quickly. And so if you look back, the first speech he gave as president about healthcare, the first major speech, um, I believe it was February or March of 2009. It was like a 6,000 some odd word speech. It was maybe one of the longest speeches he gave as president um, because he started, he was getting all into cost control and talking about Atul Gawande and, you know, the various healthcare systems across the country that had been doing good jobs on cost control. And it just, it was very, very, very wonky. And that was sort of the challenge we faced over the next couple of years is balancing 
an easy healthcare message, which is, yeah, we want to go out and cover everyone, and that's great, and bring down costs with, okay, well, how are you going to do that? And once you start answering how you're going to do that, um, you very quickly get into the weeds. And, and I remember that speech. It was late February 2009, which kind of kicked off yeah. the, the healthcare push. What, what do you think you needed to be more effective in communicating on healthcare? Because in addition to the wonkiness of the cost control stuff, it was the middle of the financial uh, crash and then the recovery really hadn't begun. So having yes. to communicate this message, what was the thing that was missing that would have made it more easy for the White House to get its goal across in, in a not especially friendly media environment around the issue? Well, I think what, I think what we didn't do, what we didn't anticipate was the level of the opposition that took place over the summer, summer of 2009. That's when there were all those Tea Party town halls about healthcare, And I think that we probably should have been out there a lot more talking about health care. Um, and we sort of let that get ahead of us. Right. Why, why, weren't you, so, why weren't you out there? I think a couple of things, like you just said, first of all, there was ongoing, you know, middle of a financial crisis, still trying to sell the Recovery Act, uh, Wall Street reform. There's a million crises that pop up all over the place. And then August is traditionally, you know, after the White House staff has been going nonstop, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week from the day he's inaugurated um, on like, okay, August is the month where everyone kind of catches their breath. Congress goes home, right? There's a recess, so maybe everyone can kind of catch their breath before the big fall push. Well, uh, we quickly learned that there is no catching your breath ever. <laughs> and, you know, and so basically what we had to do was reset the conversation um, in early September around Labor Day. And he, that's in Labor Day of 2009 is when he delivered the big joint session speech to Congress about healthcare, And he gave that and he needed to do it in prime time precisely because we had fallen behind over the summer. And um, there was all this, you know, misinformation out there and all this opposition at these town halls. So that was uh, the purpose of that speech was to fight back against all that. And, and then there was opposition in the middle of that speech when uh, Congressman you Wilson lie. rolls out, you lie. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was unexpected. <laughs> that was unexpected also. Um, but that, that speech, putting together that speech was interesting, too, because I remember, um, you know, the president and I had talked about that speech. Um, I put together a draft very quickly because, you know, we had decided to give it maybe a week before he delivered it. And after that, when he looked at the first draft, the, the big thing he wanted to change was he's like, look, there's a lot of arguments out there. This is a government takeover. Um undocumented immigrants are going to be able to apply for Obamacare, death panels. He's like, and I know that, you know, communications 101 is that you're not supposed to repeat the charge and knock it down, right? You're just supposed to talk about the positive aspects of the bill. He's like, but if, because these are out there, these, these ideas, these, these myths about the bill are out there. And if I don't knock them down in this very public venue, then they're going to stick with us forever. And so he wanted to make sure he wanted a big section in the speech that was, some people are saying this about the bill. There's this myth about the bill. And then he wanted to knock them down one by one, which we did, which is where the Joe Wilson thing came from, because one of the big myths that he wanted to knock down was that um, Obamacare would extend benefits to undocumented immigrants. Um, but we also did we did a paragraph on death panels and I don't know, a couple other crazy things that were uh, that were out there about Obamacare. So the weight of the myths was around the negatives with the Affordable Care Act that didn't actually exist. But one myth came from the White House, and this was the infamous line, if you like your plan, you can keep yes. your plan. 
And I, yes. I think you've joked that John Lovett, your your friend and fellow Crooked Media founder, he wrote that line. I, is that is that true? Was it a Lovett line or was it someone else's? No. So, of course, you know, I should have seen this coming when I said this, that, you know, this has been like a right wing trope for now for the last however many months. Um, I mean, it's funny because at this in a Trump White House, right, we are now accustomed to things just sort of like someone says a line and you don't know where it comes from. Right. But. I had no idea that anyone would actually think that a line that had such policy consequences attached to it would come from like one of the speechwriters. <laughs> that the, that that was a policy that you know we only wrote into speeches because it had been developed by the policy team. So to to to, to let you know how the whole if you like your healthcare plan you can keep it came about is. Um, the whole the plan was designed around making sure that was true, right? But what what had happened was, obviously, in the individual market, part of the reason we wanted to pass the Affordable Care Act is because a lot of these plans that people are buying, health insurance plans that people are buying on the individual market, were essentially junk plans. They didn't cover a whole bunch of essential benefits. We're now talking about essential benefits again when it comes to the repeal, you know, the House bill, right? So what we wanted to make sure of was every insurance plan would be required to provide a number of essential benefits. So your insurance plan has to cover hospitalization, has to cover ambulance trips, has to cover doctor's visits, has to cover maternity care, substance abuse, mental health. Uh, there can't be lifetime limits on or annual limits on the amount of care you receive. So this was part of Obamacare, right? But we knew that, okay, there's going to be some people with these plans that don't have essential benefits that want to keep those plans, and they don't want those plans canceled. So... What we're going to do is make sure that there is a grandfather clause in the legislation so that people can keep these plans, even though they're not good plans, even though they're substandard insurance plans. We want to make sure that they keep them for a while, that they're they're able to keep them and that it's phased out gradually so that there isn't a lot of disruption to people. So the reason we could say that line, if you like your health care plan, you could keep it is because they added that grandfather clause to the legislation to make it true. Now, what happened is once Obamacare started to be implemented, the Department of Health and Human Services early on in the implementation decided, you know what, we have to phase out these junk plans faster than we have been. And we have to make sure that this grandfather clause doesn't last as long as it has because it's going to screw up the market to have all these junk insurance plans alongside these insurance plans that are forced to cover essential benefits. Right. So when HHS made that decision, to shorten the grandfather clause, to get rid of it a year early, and all the cancellations that are coming, our mistake was not having the president out there giving a big speech saying, by the way, I know that I said, if you like your insurance plan, you can keep it, but what we're trying to do is upgrade these insurance plans to make sure they cover these essential benefits. And so if you have one of these substandard plans, um, you're going to have a plan with better benefits, but you probably will get a cancellation uh, notice from your insurance company. So... What was mishandled was the fact that HHS made this decision on the grandfather clause and we just didn't we didn't have a communication strategy around it. Like we didn't get ahead of it. And that was wrong, you know. But the idea that like, you know, Love It or me or any speechwriter was just like, Well, I mean, here's our plan that we're proposing, but let's just throw in this line about liking your plan, you can keep it. Like it's just it's so silly, you know, like this is these are decisions that were made with the president, the policy team and everyone else. So I, I, I want to untangle for listeners because you know sure. this and I know this, but but many of them might not know. No. A, a few months ago, I, I think it was on the Charlie Rose show, or, or maybe it was even longer than a few months ago. That was where a the joke came. Yeah. A year ago, where 
the joke was that John Lovett wrote this line. You were saying that, no, no, that's just a joke that you guys were making on TV. It went much deeper. And then the issue was that HHS broke from the administration original plan to use the grandfather policy and keep these plans around longer. So I I guess I ask about this because it, it comes up, John, every day that I'm reporting on the current Republican push. I either mm-hmm. hear from someone in Congress or, or voters, conservative voters that I talk to, that the original sin was the Obama White House was misleading on health care. So maybe if Republicans right. are misleading, it's it's fair fair game. Do you feel like that undermines progressives' criticisms of Republican efforts, that there was this line, this very well-known line, that Obama uttered that stuck with the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I certainly wish that we hadn't gone through that episode, right? I heard, wish that we had, we should be a little more careful. I wish we had been more careful about that for sure. Um, but keep in mind the scale of, like, even if you, even if you put the in, uh, individual market aside, right? And, and we said this in the speech to Congress, right? Because when that happened, I mean, if you like your plan, you can keep a thing happen. You know, I started looking back at all the old speeches. And if you look at the one that he delivers to Congress in September of 09, um, he doesn't use that line. He uses the line. Um, and I just want everyone who has insurance, if you have, if you get your insurance through your employer, through Medicare, through Medicaid, through the Children's Health Insurance Program, through the VA, nothing is going to change about your insurance at all. And that statement is true. <laughs> right. And that that covers that covered like 90 percent of people in the country. I, I that could be a little off on the percentage, but it's up there um, with insurance. So the truth is, there was about, you know, 2% of the population, I think, that were affected by insurance cancellations um, that ended up being, you know, the Obamacare market offered them uh, upgraded insurance that covered essential benefits. But so there's 2% of people affected, right? So yes, um, didn't turn out to be true. You shouldn't have said it. But um, that is like, the, the comparison of that to the lies that the House Republicans right now are peddling about this bill, which is like, it's not even like they're saying it covers X amount of people, but it, but the CBO actually says, no, it covers a couple million more. And it turns out that they're wrong, right? It's not that kind of mystery. It's, it's like up is down, black is white sort of lies, right? Like Paul Ryan this weekend saying, oh, no, no. This has extra layers of protection for people with pre-existing condition. Or we're going to cut $880 billion from Medicaid and um, no one's going to get kicked off Medicaid, which is what Tom Price said over the weekend. I mean, it's just like these are like embarrassing, obvious, patronizing, bald-faced lies about the bill, you know. And so I just think that the that the scale of what they're saying is just it's it's pretty bad. It really was a tour de force on the Sunday shows this weekend. Tom Price and Paul Ryan, Mick Volvaney, the budget director, was on CBS Face the Nation. And John Dickerson, the host, I thought, had a very good line of questioning where Mulvaney said, well, the CBO can't be trusted. They they make mistakes. And Dickerson pointed out, even if they're making a mistake of 10 million fewer people than, than the CBO projected will get, stripped of their coverage or, or lose or choose not to have coverage in a decade, that's still 14 million people or 15 million people. So the, well, the, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the, this is their big problem, right? The simple test is, okay, so what's wrong with the affordable carriage right now? Um, premiums are still too high for too many people. Deductibles are still too high and we still don't have a hundred percent coverage in this country, right? So any new healthcare bill that you introduce should be able to pass a very simple test. Does it expand coverage to more people? 
and does it bring down premiums and deductibles? And they can't say that their bill does either of those things. They can plausibly say that it may it will bring down premiums for young and healthy people, and they only do that by pricing older and sicker people out of the market, right? And but pushing like, pushing thinner plans potentially, and pushing thinner and pushing those junk plans that you know that was the whole. Uh, that's why we included essential benefits in Obamacare. Um, yes, so they can't like you like like Dickerson was saying. Like, there's no plausible route to saying that. Um, this bill will cover more people than are currently covered under the law right now, under, you know, in, in the country right now. They just can't do that. And instead, 24 million people will lose their health insurance. That's what the CBO said. Okay, so yeah, let's say the, C- the CBO is off by a huge magnitude. Is, is 15 million acceptable? Is 10 million acceptable? Like, why does anyone have to lose their health insurance under this bill? Hey, it's Dan Diamond. And if you're listening to this podcast and you like political podcasts, then we would like to know just a little bit more about you. A reminder that we're running a survey. It's at politico.com slash podcast survey, one word, where we have a few questions about your listening habits, what you'd like to hear, should take less than two minutes to fill out. It's politico.com slash podcast survey. And with that, let's get back to the conversation. So my, my question for you, John, as someone who was a messaging professional on the highest possible level in politics, how much does messaging even matter about healthcare, about this issue, given that the House pushed this bill through, the Senate, if you're just looking at what they're more yeah. likely to do, that they're going to probably do something on healthcare as well. Does the messaging even matter at this point? Are we past the point where communication strategy even can slow things down? Well, look, I think it, I think it, it, it always matters. Uh, I think it's not everything, right? Like if there wasn't, I mean, messaging got this bill to a, a, a point where it uh, has 17% approval among the American people, right? It's a highly, highly unpopular bill. But, you know, would, did anyone expect that um, a party in power would ram through legislation that was, you know, supported by 17% of the American people? No, not really, but they have the numbers to do so. Uh, and clearly their incentive right now is to put, and we've been saying this on the podcast, is to put any kind of win on the board um, and for, for President Trump and for themselves. And they have fooled themselves into thinking, and or maybe it's not fooling themselves, who knows, we'll see in the elections, but um, they believe that they will be, that their their base, that the conservative base will punish them more for passing no bill than for passing a bill that may take away health insurance for much of their base. That's, that's, that's the bet that they're making right now. And, um, and I just don't, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that's a good bet, but we will, um, we will see. I, I know this might be difficult given your politics, but if you were setting aside the politics, if you were just a hired gun advising the white house right now on messaging around healthcare, what advice would you give them? I mean, I, I don't think I could divorce my messaging advice from my policy advice, right? Like, I think that they, if they wanted a win on healthcare, um, there was a universe where they could have uh, proposed some fixes to the Affordable Care Act because it was not perfect. It certainly needs fixing, certainly needs some improvements. Um, they, they could have introduced a few conservative ideas that they've been peddling for, uh, you know, a couple of years, they could have said, oh, you should be able to sell insurance across state lines, right? Um, there could have been another, there could have been some medical malpractice reform things that they introduced. And then they could have beefed up the subsidies and, uh, and done a few other things to improve it. And then they could have said, we are actually 
um, bringing down premiums more than Obamacare does. We're taking care of the high deductibles and um, and, and we're going to call it Trump care and it's going to be better than Obamacare. And there you go. Right. Trump did not again, Trump did not run, uh, at least on economics and on health care as a traditional Republican. He said he wouldn't cut Medicare and Medicaid. He said he wanted health care for everyone. So, you know, he could have tried to pass a bill that improved Obamacare and he could have just slapped his name on it and taken credit. Um, he didn't do that because he let Paul Ryan and the House Republicans, you know, walk all over him because he doesn't have a firm grasp of policy details. I think that's what happened. We are we are four months into the Trump administration and have seen multiple protests against him. The Women's March, <laughs> the Climate March, the immigration rallies, the healthcare town halls. You, you get to see this from a few vantage points as someone who was inside the White House when pushing different policies and seeing what tapped the American voter, and now as someone who's emerging as a leader of progressives and, and an organizer, in a sense, via crooked media. Why... Let me, let me think about how I want to say this. Where does healthcare rank as an organizing issue for progressives? I think it has to be at the very top of the list. I've been saying this for uh, over the weekend when we did a couple shows and the last couple of podcasts. Like, I, I want to see all of the energy and enthusiasm that went into organizing the Women's March, the Climate March, the Science March, um, all the energy that went into going to the airports when the ban was proposed. I want to see all of that energy and enthusiasm into trying to stop this healthcare reform repeal from passing. And the reason I say that is because, um, look, I think all of these issues are extremely important to progressives. We should care about all of them. We should put energy into all of them. But um, this will, I mean, this bill passes. If something like the House bill passes, millions of people will go bankrupt. People will die. Um, this is, it's, just, it's that serious. There are people hanging on. And that's that's from the, the substantive point of view, even from the political point of view, like this is we, we've talked Democrat. How, I don't know how long we've talked now since Trump won about reaching out to these voters who um, forget about just the Trump voters, but these these voters who cast their ballots for Obama twice and then decided to vote for Trump over Hillary Clinton. These people who are economically anxious, who, um, you know, are working harder for less and, you know, are, are, are left behind by the global economy. These are the men and women black, white, Hispanic, um, who are going to be hurt most by this Republican repeal effort. And we need to stand up for these people and we need to fight for them. And this, to me, this is the whole point of the resistance, right? Is to, is to fight for people who are getting screwed by powerful interests in Washington. And Trump ran for president promising that the central promise of his campaign was to take care of these people who've been left behind by Washington and left behind by powerful interests. And now he is screwing them. And so are the House Republicans and 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 and, uh, and probably the Senate Republicans, too. And so this has to be the stand that we take more than anything else. I think I think this is at the very top of the list. Is, is it possible for all of those movements and messages to coalesce, though? I mean, take the climate movement, which mm-hmm. theoretically there there is some overlap with healthcare, but they are pushing very hard on climate change regulations. Right. Can they be brought on board or do they already have their own message and platform and organizing that they've done the past number of months and in some ways working yeah. across purposes for unification of message? Look, I think we all, I think we have to find places where um, all of these different movements overlap. Um, and I think, you know, economic justice uh, isn't it, and which is at the center of the healthcare debate. 
um, you know, I think that cuts across a whole bunch of different areas. I think there's an economic justice component to climate change. I think there's an economic justice component to women's rights. I think, you know, and so I, I do think that um, it, you're right that healthcare is where a lot of these different movements intersect in different ways um, because it's fundamentally a pocketbook economic issue. And I do think, I, I think, you know, I think there's plenty of areas of overlap and I think progressives are uh, energized enough that, um, you know, they have the time to care about all these issues. Who's the progressive leader who can organize here and, and be the focal point of the resistance in your mind? I mean, I think part of our challenge is that we we're always sort of waiting and expecting for, you know, one hero to come along. And I think it has to be a number of people. And it has to I mean, like, I think the mistake we can't make again is and, you know, we were all part of this, too. Barack Obama's he's going to save us all. We're going to give him our vote. He's going to go to Washington. He's going to fix out all the problems um, because he's this once in a generation talent. And all we have to do is put him in the white house and then everything will be solved. That turned out not to be true. And it's never going to be true. There's never going to be someone who comes along who we're going to elect president as Democrats, who's going to fix everything. And I think we've, I hope that we've learned that now more than ever. And so we need leaders, not just in Washington, not just in the white house, not just in Congress, but governors and state legislators and people at the local level standing up and fighting for this. And I think that's what the resistance has been about. You've seen a lot of these elected Democrats have been following the resistance, um, not the other way around. And I think a lot of these people who are showing up at these town halls right now, they're not there because any specific Democratic leader told them to. They're there because, you know, sometimes they might not even be Democrats, right? They might not. They might have had problems with the party but they're showing up because they believe in this stuff. And so I think we need to get back to sort of localizing a lot of our opposition to this and not waiting for people in Washington to step up. I, I want to wrap our, our chat with a few questions about Crooked Media, your new podcast empire with the sure. Save America and um, the new DeRay McKesson podcast that Andy Slavitt, who's been on this show, has appeared on on that premier podcast for you. Mm -hmm. What have you learned, John, about media coverage and politics from being <laughs> on this side of it as a content creator? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I have a, I, for one, I have a greater appreciation um, for uh, journalists and, and the job they do. I think when you're uh, when you're on the other side of it, when you're government official or you're on a campaign, uh, you do a lot of complaining about the media. Uh, and as you can tell from my Twitter feed, I still do a lot of complaining about the media. Um, <laughs> But I have try. I have been trying much harder to be specific in my complaints <laughs> and to not wrap everything in. Oh, the media does this with your shorthand, then it's probably not helpful, right? And so I'm trying to be a little more specific about it. Look, and I also just um, I also try to as uh, and Craig and Media too. It is very easy. Um, I mean, we were in the White House, right? We would always say, okay, it's we can't let ourselves get stuck in the Washington media cycle and be reactive to the 24-hour Washington media cycle every day. We can't just wake up worried about what's on Morning Joe and what's in, you know, the tip sheets that morning and what's on cable news and what someone's yelling on CNN about. Um, we, we, you know, we have to think about the long game. We have to think about what's long-term. And um, so that was sort of our credo in the White House. It's interesting because when you're in media and you're trying to produce content every day, and you're trying to talk about issues every day, and you need stuff to talk about, 
I can see now how easy it is to fall into the trap of only being reactive to what else is in the news cycle and being part of an echo chamber. We talk about echo chambers a lot in terms of like liberal versus conservative echo chamber, but I actually think there's a Washington media echo chamber that it's not about the partisan bias or the ideological con- you know, um, viewpoint. It's just about sort of what we all talk about to each other that's in the news, right? And it is very, it's, it's personality driven, it's conflict driven, it's sensational. And I've always complained about it when I was in politics and in government, but I get how when you're trying to talk about the news, produce news, produce content on a day-to-day basis, you can get caught up in that cycle. And so one thing I try to do when we're at Quick Media is to be careful that we're not just talking about issues that are being talked about on Twitter that day, uh, that we're trying to think a little more long-term about some of the content that we produce. What's an example of that? You know, it's just, it's, it's like, like I'm very, listening to DeRay's first episode was so great because he did a rundown of... Uh, his 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 sort of initial 20 minutes of what he talked about on that first podcast episode were not the headline items that probably we have talked about on Pod Save America that week, right? They were sort of underreported stories that nevertheless had huge impact on people, right? Um, so he was talking about, um, you know, uh, voting rights in Florida, and he was talking about a whole bunch of other issues that don't necessarily... Um, that don't necessarily pop up in the news all the time. And I heard that and I thought to myself, like, we got to be, we got to be even better about making sure we hit issues like that, that aren't just the, uh, aren't just the usual churn. So the healthcare bill passes and it mobilizes the left. And it, it does become something that you talked about on Pod Save America. I listened to your live show from Seattle. It was a big, Mm -hmm. big focus that day. And it clearly motivated the crowd too. Isn't outrage... And aren't some of these Trump actions kind of ironically good for progressives who are hoping to take back seats in Congress and and good for you now as a progressive media outlet? I mean, it certainly it it focuses the opposition, right? It gives you something to focus on. Um, But I just I'm very wary of getting um, look, being in the opposition and saying not everything and and being outraged is uh, important to stop bad things from happening. But I'm very wary of like letting that be the only thing that we do, right? Like if we do not have a positive message, if we do not go out there and fight for what we believe in, I think we have a problem. And I do think Democrats need a good answer to, okay, well, what would your health care, what would your, um, you know, improvement on Obamacare look like? I think we need to have that message. Um, I don't I mean, it's very possible that the House Democrats could win back the House um, without a, a positive message. Um, but I don't think we should test that proposition. I think we should have a positive message. And I think we should be for something. And I want progressives to know, too, that, look, it is, it, it's easier to have the energy uh, on the opposition side, right? But hopefully, someday, we're going to be back in power. And then when we pass the next piece, big piece of legislation, like we did the Affordable Care Act, we have to be out there energized and caring just as much as we are now when we're worried about this Republican health care bill. Um, we have to be as focused on the positive things we're going to do and put as much energy behind that as we're putting behind the opposition. So I just I don't want people to forget that. Last question. Congress is back on recess. There are a smattering of town halls. Most of the members who voted for the health bill aren't holding town halls, which which is a story into itself. But yeah, the town halls 
in retrospect, maybe they didn't work as well as they could have, given that many of the members who were most pressured ended up voting for the bill anyway. What should progressives do differently this time with town halls to achieve their goal of dissuading congressmen from voting for a bill that they really, really don't want them to? Look, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't necessarily think this is think they have to do anything different. I think it is just you have to keep it up, right? Like these things take time. I do think that there was, you know, this idea that we could everyone can get angry, go to town halls. And then, you know, the first the first repeal effort failed in the House. And so now we're done. We can move on to the next thing. I think what we're learning is this is a constant struggle. And it's going to take constant activism and organizing over the next two to four to eight years. I mean, the, the, the struggle is really never over here. And if you're going to be someone who participates and is active and is going to these town halls, um, look, the ideal is that you go to these town halls and persuade your member of Congress not to vote for the bill. That's the ideal. And, you know, there's 16 no votes at the end of the day from House Republicans. So probably the people who went to their town halls, that worked. But if you don't reach that ideal of them voting against the bill and they decide to vote for the bill, then your next job is making sure that they lose their job in 2018. Right. And so you just, you have to look to the next thing and um, it's not always going to work. That doesn't mean that you stay home or you give up. You just got to keep showing up at these town halls, keep here, you know, and also try to get more people to come, right? Like try to get your neighbor who may hate this bill, but may never have gone to a town hall before you know, get your neighbor to come with you. Because I do think the more people that show up and are vocal in their opposition, the harder it is for Republicans to think, oh, that's just a few liberal activists. I don't have to pay attention to them. Because if they think that, then, you know, they'll continue taking these votes. But if they start seeing people who are Republicans, who are independents, who may never have come to town halls before, who may never voted before, they see those people showing up, that might change the calculus a little bit. Well, a very optimistic rallying message from John Favreau, co-founder of Crooked Media, host of Pod Save America. John, thank you for making time for this call. Dan, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and we're going to take a quick break to hear about another one of Politico's podcasts. This one from Carrie Budoff Brown, our editor, my friend, the great host of Women Rule. When I was involved in a lot of these boards, I was the only woman in the room. None of us got here by being namby-pamby. Right, so there's a G-rated version and there's a not-so-G-rated version. I'll, since it's a podcast, I guess I can do like the full-on version. I've said to not just to Kellyanne, but to all women who are thinking about getting into this arena, you've, you've got to try. I'm Carrie Budoff-Brown, host of Politico's Women Rule podcast. And those were just a few of my favorite moments so far. Join me as we go backstage with bosses. I want to know how these women made it to the top and what difference it makes when women are in power. Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. New episodes every other Wednesday. And now let's hear from Rick Wilson, a Republican strategist who not only has thoughts about the Affordable Care Act, but what Republicans are doing wrong with their own health care effort. Flashing back to the Affordable Care Act in 2008, 2009, 2010, you were doing focus groups and messaging on on behalf of Republicans. What was the biggest vulnerability around the ACA push? We conducted a number of focus groups for both individual candidates uh, and for some PAC clients who wanted to basically run a lot of opposition to Obamacare. And we discovered almost universally 
uh, and almost immediately that there was one argument that the Obamacare people had that, that trumped everything else that we could say. And that was the argument about pre-existing conditions. It was a nuclear bomb going off inside of opposition to uh, to Obamacare. Now, we had good arguments on our side of keeping your doctor, of the government selecting your plans and death panels and making decisions, you know, about your medical choices that, that, that people were uncomfortable with government making. But everyone had experienced some variation on the theme of, of losing coverage or having people with pre-existing conditions having coverage denied to them or paying, you know, rather large insurance premiums than being told, no, we don't cover X uh, because, you know, that's a pre-existing condition. It was a it was a really strong argument on the Obamacare side of it. And, and again, I don't I don't make this as a policy argument. I, I'm not a healthcare policy expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I listen to what people tell me and I and I watch what drives the politics of these things. And that's why you saw Barack Obama and the Democrats focus almost exclusively on pre-existing and, and on, on making sure that, that they messaged over and over again, no matter what's wrong with you, you're going to get health insurance. No matter what, you know, no matter what's gone wrong in your health history, you're going to get insurance coverage. It's going to be there for you. Now, because of that, you know, we focused on different areas. We focused on the quality of care. We focused on whether you could still access your own doctor. Um, but as I see the Republicans playing this out again, it's as if they're ignoring the giant stack of, of polling and focus group information that, that they know uh, was, was the strongest argument for Obama. And it's almost as if they're putting their head in the noose and choosing the single worst thing that becomes the highlight of their plan. The single worst political outcome of their plan seems to be to deny people with pre-existing conditions coverage. And I don't think that the rather complex and Baroque uh, things that were described in this bill will be easy to message. Well, one of the challenges, too, is that for all of the concern about pre-existing conditions seven or eight years ago, it has now been that much more uh, ossified, much more part of the ex- expectation in American healthcare because of the Affordable Care Act. So Republicans are, are now facing kind of the dual wind there. It's it's so true, and and I think that your I think your point is is correct. You know, as one of these folks who who has argued a long time, we have the entitlement reform. We always run up against that problem that once Americans perceive they are entitled to something, they are loath to give it up, and now they believe that they are entitled to health insurance no matter what the pre existing conditions are, and and. This has been the one thing in Obamacare that I think is still the tentpole strength of it for for folks who are trying to to, to save it and preserve it, um, and that is that you know people now expect that even if they've had heart disease or cancer or some other pre-existing condition that they're going to they're going to be able to keep their coverage. And I, I will say this, you know, I, I, when I'm wearing my my political advisor hat, you know, I try not to I try not to make it emotional in any way. But I know people in my own family. I know people, you know, in my circle of friends, who, despite their political uh, affiliations or beliefs or where they fall in the ideological spectrum, right now there's a lot of fear out there. And yes, it's anecdotal, but there's a lot of fear out there, even when people of means or who are terrified that you know one day they're going to wake up and, and be told you've got cancer, and 
and that this thing is going to you know, throw them into a high-risk pool where their premium, yes, maybe under this Republican plan, they'll still be able to get coverage, but their premium will be $30,000 a year with a $150,000 deductible. I mean, there's a lot of fear out there, and the, and my side has done almost nothing uh, correctly in terms of messaging this. I, I want to talk about that messaging because we've seen since a week ago when House Republicans voted this through, Congress is now on recess. A handful of Republicans have held town halls where they've been hit over and over again about the pre-existing conditions protections. Their counter is, for the most part, things will be fine. It would take this cascade of events, unlikely events in in many cases for states to offer these waivers and then for the high-risk pool uh, to take effect and then run out of money before patients would be hit on some massive level. From your perspective, Rick, watching Republicans try and message at the town halls, how how good are they doing considering how much they're hampered by a very unpopular bill? It, uh, I, I think that from what I've seen so far in a lot of the clips, what they're doing is giving the Democrats uh, fodder for TV ads in 2018. Because the messaging that they came out of the House with, with from the caucus with, was terrible. Um, and, and you know, there have been a few, I'm not even talking about the, the real blow-ups, like, oh, no one, no one, you know, no one dies because they don't have health insurance. Uh, th- that th- That's the kind of thing that's even an edge case or an outlier. But, but the messaging they're coming out with, they're talking in in policy frames like, oh, we're going to offer a high-risk pool for a state option for this and that. People don't hear that. They don't understand it. They don't, they don't hear it. What they hear is, we're taking away your pre-existing condition coverage. Die. And 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 it's not because I agree with Obamacare. Or I'm a fan of Obamacare. It's because I've just seen this movie before. And in 2009, we were able to frame the Democrats as the people who were going to take your doctor away so you would die. And now they're going to frame. They're going to take away your pre-existing condition coverage so you will die. I mean, yes, both sides exaggerate wildly. But it is a we're in a position right now where if Republicans don't realize how clumsy and how bad this messaging is, then, you know, I, there's not much I can do to help. Well, that that would be my next question. And I realize your advice doesn't come free normally. But if you were offering advice to the House Republicans who are now defending this or the Senate Republicans who are now working on their own version of health care, just from a messaging perspective, what what can they do? to be smarter or better, given the legislation that they've put together and the path that they are heading down? Well, first off, I think they need to make, and I, I, I hesitate to use the exact formulation of a contract with America, but they need to do something that shows people that that they're not basically being responsive to a bunch of D.C. lobbyists and insurance industry people, which is the truth. They are doing that. Um, and they need to tell people we are going to 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 rigidly guarantee that we're not going to protect companies and set up a system where companies can throw you off your insurance if you're if you're paying your premiums they can't throw you off because of a pre-existing condition and they can't deny you some sort of reasonable coverage and look I mean if I had been in the house I would have approached this differently again not a healthcare policy expert not pretending to be one but you know what would have really been smart if they'd come out with a bill that would have had some demonstrable effect on the on, on premium costs and 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 on deductible costs. That would have made made sense to Americans, and then they might have thought, "Hey, there's a trade-off here. 
So yeah, maybe this pre-existing thing is going to be a little tricky, but my premiums are going to go down to some level where I can afford uh, to, to, to buy insurance for my family. And they're going to, and my deductibles are going to go down to the point where I can use the insurance that I, that I, that I'm able to buy. We didn't do that. Nothing. They, they apparently, like I said, it's almost as if they went into this policy fight thinking, let's pick the one issue that makes us look worst. Well, last question, and it has to do with the broader issues that Republicans are, are confronting right now. It feels like for the past three months, there has been a protest here in D.C. almost every week, whether it was on Trump and women, Trump and the science march and, and climate, now healthcare. The Comey, James Comey firing is now going to hang over everything with specters of Russian collusion. It's a little far afield for our healthcare podcast. But what I'm curious about, Rick, is from an issue standpoint of motivating opposition, where in your mind does healthcare rank compared to all of these other issues that have mobilized opponents of the administration? Is this the most powerful issue? Is it, is it something that can get more voters out than, say, immigration? Any Republican who's fooling themselves right now and forgetting the lessons of 2009, that, that when people are deeply, profoundly motivated by something that directly affects their personal lives— and healthcare is definitely one of those issues. Um, it can lead to the conditions for a wave election, and maybe it's not maybe it's not sufficient to cause a wave election, but it's necessary. And so we may be entering a situation where Republicans, you know, they're going to have to run for the hills if this thing starts to turn south, and and they're going to have to be saying things like, "Well, I voted for the bill, but it didn't pass." I wanted to take your pre-existing condition coverage away, but it didn't work out. That's really not a great position to be in as a, as a Republican candidate in 2018. And and the, the greatest favor the Senate can do the House right now is to quietly put a pillow over the head of this bill and kill it um, and, and, and try to pretend that it never happened. That's the greatest favor they could do right now. I mean, promising to repeal Obamacare um, – it was a was a laudable thing in a lot, a lot of ways. There's a lot of reasons that we needed to, to fundamentally reboot on the healthcare stuff after Obamacare. It's not uh, that my critique of the Republicans has nothing to do with the success or failure of Obamacare and its rising costs and all the difficulties with the exchanges and everything else. I'm not defending it. What I'm saying is that if your substitute and your repeal and replace is something that makes you look like uh, you are completely heartless. And that people believe you are heartless doesn't matter if you're if it's real or not. It matters they believe it. Um, then you've committed some political malpractice, and you're probably going to end up paying a price for it. Well, we will see if the Senate acts as an effective death panel for the House <laughs> House healthcare <laughs> legislation. We'll see that in the coming weeks as they tackle their own version of healthcare. Rick Wilson coming to us from Tallahassee, Florida. Thank you so much for making time, sir. That's all for Pulse Check this week. Thanks to Rick Wilson and John Favreau, and of course, Bridget Mulcahy, our ace producer. If you like Pulse Check, help us keep it and keep it going. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all other podcast apps. Rate us, review us, share us with friends. And we'll be back again with a new episode of Pulse Check next week.